All right, welcome to this episode of Jetstream Live. Super excited to be here with Mark Stoiber. He's a brand strategist, and Mark and I have known each other for uh, quite a while now, and we've had some really great conversations on webinars, podcasts, uh, in person, over coffee, uh, and really great to have you here, Mark. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me again, despite your experiences with me. <laughs> it, what do you What do you have in there? Is that your What do you call that? Shot in the dark. Coffee? Uh, yeah, my yeah. Yeah, it's a uh, shot of a shot of espresso and uh, and dark coffee. And it's really funny because um, I was at a resort and uh, they said, oh, you want a, a Canadiana? And I said, what? Oh, our Canadiano. And I said, what's that? They go, well, it's a shot in the dark. And I go, really? And they say, yeah, it's like an Americano, an Americano, except stronger. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why well, like when, when we went for coffee and you ordered that and I'd never heard of it. And I was like, wow, that's caffeine inside of caffeine. It's like yeah. coffee inception. Yeah, it's coffee inception. But the thing is, you know, it's just um, espresso actually, although it tastes stronger, doesn't have as much caffeine as drip coffee, but it drip coffee tastes weaker. So espresso has a nicer taste. So how long can I can go all morning on this if you want? We can, we can talk about coffee. <laughs> well, I I got off caffeine about two years ago. Oh my goodness! Uh, you yeah, don't you're, you're you dropped you dropped alcohol. You you eat right. You exercise like a fiend, and now you're off caffeine. I think I'm I'm a good quitter. Well, yeah, exactly. I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a quitter. That's why I don't want to be identified as. So I yeah, could do yeah. I could easily do what you're doing, but I just don't want to be a quitter. You just don't want to do it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. No, hats off, man. Hats yeah, off. no, thanks. It's it's uh it's been really good. It's been really helpful for my own stress and anxiety to not drink and not have coffee. But that's not what we're here to talk about, although I, I know talk I can, about we that can all keep day going. Long. You can tell we know each other because we can yeah. just wander off. We'll be talking about Bugs Bunny shortly. Yeah, you know, exactly. And, uh, waste uh, but yeah, time. what I what I really want to talk about on on these lives is uh well, is revenue growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, you and I have talked a fair bit about this as well as, you know, I come from the performance space, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where we've been all solely focused on driving leads, driving sales, all about the metrics and hitting those metrics. Uh, and we, we looked at brand as like this other thing, like, oh, we don't do that. That's just pretty colors and things that we don't need. Uh, I've come to learn over the years that it's actually extremely important and really helps with uh, conversions as well. And so what I thought we could chat about today is just kind of the, the the blend there of like performance versus brand and storytelling and why that's important and why it shouldn't be a versus, why they actually should should really work together. And so maybe you can just talk a little bit about, you know, your experience with building brands. Uh, we'll just kind of see where that conversation mm -hmm. goes and, and, you know, what you see happening maybe today as uh, digital marketing continues to grow and expand and, mm -hmm. and or meld more into the brand marketing that we uh, are used to. And maybe we don't call it digital marketing in the future. So yeah, I don't know I, if you I, find I, a question in there somewhere. I believe that that's the, the first mistake is that setting digital marketing apart from marketing puts one of the two or, or digital brand right. building apart from brand building. It puts one of the two in a ghetto. You know, we used to do that. I was, I came up in the world, you know, before electricity and um, we used to have divisions in our agency. I, I, became I was a creative director of a couple of big agencies and um and we used to have divisions in the agency between uh direct marketing and marketing which direct marketing was all the stuff that you got in your mailbox and we used to call it ju uh, junk mail mm -hmm. and the uh, the people who worked in direct marketing uh they were smart people great people 
but there was always a chip on their shoulder because they always got ghettoized, you know, mm -hmm. uh, by the people who were uh, spotless and in the ivory tower. And these were the folks who were creating the uh, the Super Bowl ads and and the the ads that went to Cannes. And and you know, I belonged to that crowd. And and it was the dumbest division in the world because, and it was obviously a result of people who had never sold stuff in their life. They came up through art school. Uh, or they learned how to write copy and then they went to an ad agency and then they assumed that they're going to be doing clever stuff that gets in, you know, the one show and there's a can ad festival. And they were completely disconnected from the business of selling product, which, you know, it's, it's, it's an unpleasant to some reality that we aren't artists. Our job is to create clever things that are memorable to sell stuff. And if you get disconnected from that, it leads to very, very uh, pretty usually, but ultimately fairly self-serving work. Now, digital marketing, I think, is interesting because on the one hand, uh, you've got the, the junk mail stigma, the performance marketing stigma. And so what that has done has driven has been to drive a wedge between traditional brand people and digital brand people or digital marketers. But what the traditional brand people don't realize is that nobody is interested in their opinion anymore because the people who are doing digital have this amazing capacity to measure what they've done. And anybody who came up in this as a native in sort of digital, you have to step back and, and remember that this was never before possible. The closest we ever came was in direct marketing where we would send out an envelope and it said, if you list, uh, if you mention this envelope or if you bring in this uh, coupon or if you quote this number, we will give you a discount or we will give you the sale price on this item. And the reason we did that was so that we could track if people were actually paying attention. But if mm. you compare it to being able to go to a Facebook ad and click and boom, suddenly my information shows up. I've, con I've done a micro conversion and then I go to a landing page and I click or I fill in a form. I've done another micro conversion. That was the stuff of Buck Rogers fantasy to us. <laughs> so we never had the capacity to measure with the speed and accuracy that is possible today. So digital marketing, is this amazing tool. But I believe that what has happened, and this happens with every new technology that comes along from radio to television to the internet to social and digital, uh, whatever is next, uh, there's always a period, adjusting period, where they have to find out who's who in the zoo and do we get along, do we like each other, do we not? But brand people, I think, have taken the same a negative and self-harming sort of attitude that we're above that. We're not performance marketers. We're brand people. We create Super Bowl ads. And that completely misses the point. They have the most powerful tool at their disposal. And that is instant measurement of effectiveness. And they have to get off their high horse and remember that we're in the business of selling stuff. And anything digital enables us to track if we're selling stuff. It's ultimately quite an ego blow to people who have been high and mighty for a long time to find out that although pretty, their stuff might not be working so good.
Right. Yeah. And, you know, you make me think a lot about uh, Ogilvy. You know, I guess he'd be considered the, the grandfather of marketing or advertising. And if you look back at some of his stuff, he was very like direct response like. And in fact, you know, he wrote some of the first fake articles, right? Like in newspapers where he made them look like an article. Mm -hmm. And when he wrote in this way, he saw that it was very, very effective. Uh, and, you know, some of the stuff that he did was very just like direct and to the point. And so one of the quotes that I have that I think is kind of interesting, I'm not sure, you know, how I feel about it, but he says something about uh, if it doesn't sell, it's not creative. Mm -hmm. And and I think because I think you can create stuff that is, I don't know, I mean, I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on what you think of that that quote, like if something doesn't sell, is it still creative? Can something sell even if it's not creative? Like it's that's interesting. There was a great movie. Um, I think it's The Grifters with Paul Newman. I'm not entirely sure if it was The Grifters, but there is a there's a part in that movie about uh, raising awareness. And what we always talked about in brands is, oh, we raised awareness. Mm -hmm. And in this movie, an old gentleman spits on the table and he says. There, you paid attention to that, didn't you? But ultimately, <laughs> paying attention to something and buying it are two very different things. Rosser Reeves, who was also one of the granddaddies of advertising, um, he was the gentleman whose agency was responsible for the Anison, which is the Tylenol-type product, you know, aspirin mm -hmm. product. Yep. Yep. And they created those ads that showed the person doing this. Oh, my head hurts. And they had the lightning bolt inside the head. Yeah. Somebody, yes, somebody actually invented that. And it was a big deal when it came out. Oh, my goodness. He invented the lightning bolt inside the head. You know, ah, we have seen God. And, um, and Rosser Reeves famously said, so what do you want? A beautiful headline or you want the sales curve to move up? Right. And now the, that's interesting because he took that point of view and he was very big on testing. And ultimately... Getting too big on testing brings us very much to today. The Rosser Reeves School of Advertising is one where you test everything, 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 everything. And I was, uh, I remember my, my, uh, my first brush with the awful side of this. I was working in Germany at an agency and uh, we were doing an orange drink like Tang, you know, mm -hmm. some sort of really garbagey orange drink that the, apparently the astronauts drank and little kids yeah. drank and sugared themselves up. Uh, and uh, we created these good commercials. We thought they were good commercials, my partner and I. And um, we went to the creative director and she says, oh, uh, did you put the, the hand grab from inside the fridge shot? And we said, what? She says, oh yeah, you know that shot where the fridge door opens from the inside and the little kid looks, you know, you've seen these commercials, the yogurt one, and yeah, it says yeah. blueberry drink, milk, and then at the back of the fridge is this special drink. And the kid goes to the back of the fridge and grabs that. I said, those are awful. It's the most cliche thing in the world. And she says, it tested through the roof. So this is the equivalent of testing orange buttons against green buttons today, where you're testing something, a, micro, a, a small part of an entire entity, and you're determining one by one, taking off all the boxes to make that thing work. And what you end up with is a garbage piece of work. It's a camel where everything is technically correct and it is tested that it will be correct. However, the entire entity is garbage. And this mm. is where the, the original brand people like myself kind of come in because we go, what's the essence 
of what you're doing. And at the end of the day, you know this, Mike, you've worked with lots of, lots of tech startups. A founder doesn't come up with a brilliant idea based on orange buttons or green buttons. They come up, they say, right. I have a problem, a big problem. And I see lots of my friends have the same problem. I'm going to solve that problem. It's a human problem, not an orange or green button problem. And so they solve this problem. And that's inspiring because if it's a good problem and a great solution, we love it. So if you can express this very human thing, that is, that's creative, you know, as opposed to saying, you know, here are the features and benefits, click the orange button, Yeah, right. which is not terribly creative. So I believe that a, a foundational idea that's inspiring and based on human problems and a neat way of looking at life is creative and it sells the bejesus out of the product. Yeah. Well, you may, you maybe think of, um, uh, of Coke, um, new Coke, uh, and, and, you know, the, the problem with looking at performance analytics and what that can do. And so I, I don't know if you know the story, but I remember reading in textbooks when I was in school about this, because as a kid in the 80s, New Coke was like the massive marketing company failure. Uh, and Coke is lucky that they came out of it. But what happened there was Pepsi had been testing the like sample drinks. And in a blind taste test, Pepsi kept win winning. And so what Coke did was focus on that blind taste test. And they got it to the until they got their product to win. And that was what new Coke was going to be. And it was going to be so much better. And everyone was going to love it. But the problem that they didn't factor in was that people liked Pepsi in a small sample. It's much sweeter. They didn't want a whole drink of it. And mm -hmm. so when Coke created new Coke, they had this new drink that was great in a sample. But people didn't want to drink a whole can of it. And so that was the whole problem. And, and so because you look back in that, like, that and you're like, how does an amazing brand, amazing company like Coke decide like, hey, we're going to mess with our recipe that's been our success from day one. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's what happens. And sometimes when you get into the analytics. And so I think as performance marketers, sometimes we can see the short term win of like, hey, this product is selling. Mm -hmm. But we're not building a brand at all. So a lot that of times for me, we do a lot of paid stuff. But if we don't get to the other stuff of building the brand, the business will suffer. So in, in one of my last great hurrahs in, in big advertising, we rescued Mr. Mr. Clean uh, mm. from bankruptcy. And, and I was part of a skunk works where we were launching a new product called Mr. Clean Auto Dry, taking Mr. Clean from the kitchen and putting him in the garage with a car cleaning thing. And, um, and we were, we were, uh, the organizer of this Skunk Works was a gentleman who was a famous creative director. He was really a big deal. And I remember him saying, because Procter & Gamble, who owned Mr. Clean, at the time were famous, and you've seen this a million times. You've seen the, the tampon or the diaper commercials where they have the blue liquid. Here's one, yeah. here's the other. You've seen the dishwashing commercials where here's their cleaner, here's yeah, right. our yeah. cleaner. You've seen the side-by-sides. Proctor pretty much invented that stuff. And what they noticed, because they were richer than God, they, uh, they had the money to put behind these massive ad campaigns where they would have their cleaner, our cleaner, their diaper, our diaper. And every time they put one of those commercials out, the sales would go through the roof. Okay? Mm. Fantastic. The second that commercial came off the air, the sales would drop right back right. down. 
So they waited, put another commercial on. Boom, same thing. It, it would look like a heart rate monitor. Now, what this gentleman, this creative director said to us, he said, if you build a brand properly, if you build something based on a fundamental human truth, as opposed to look, our features, their features, our benefits, their benefits. If you build it on a fundamental truth of, of, of the person who invented it and the connection they make to other people who have the same problem, what you do, you put out a commercial with that message in it and the brand starts to rise. Then you put out another commercial and the brand rises some more. You take the commercial off the air, the brand might level out, but it doesn't go back down. Mm -hmm. Because what you're starting to do is connect with people on a human level and the brand continues to rise, rise, rise to the point where you arrive at Apple, say, mm -hmm. and you say, you know what, if we didn't advertise at all, people still have us in their heart. Right. Because they have this one-to-one -one connection. You want people to be creative i want to be creative <gasps> let's let's be friends so i think without seeing an apple commercial i go apple because i want to be creative now that would never have happened if apple would have gone we've got this many bytes they have this many bytes we have this many ram they have that many ram you know right right, right. It, it wouldn't have happened and that is sort of the measure you know comparison and measure of messages that unfortunately sort of direct marketing and also performance marketing somewhat falls into. So it's unfortunate because this human message is a bit squishy, you know, and, and it's hard to quantify. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it does still matter if you have an intuitive sense of, of humans, you know, on your part researcher and your part creative director. So you can get insights from humans and then you can play with them and turn them into nuggets of gold where you go, oh, think different. That's neat. Yeah, well, and Apple's such an interesting product as well because if you did pair it side by side with some of the other products, they're not as powerful. They're not as advanced technology-wise, but people do gravitate to that brand. So it almost sounds like you have to get to like a tipping point with a brand. Like we have to promote it enough until it kind of becomes its own thing or becomes instilled in people like apple has its fanboys and mm -hmm. you know people that are that are you know like i i don't know how it happened but suddenly i'm using all apple products now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right i have iphones and ipads and a macbook air and airpods mm -hmm. and i know it kind of just happened there's a nancy duarte who is sort of the the godfather or godmother of of presentation skills uh, and she has created presentations and pitches and decks for all the biggies, all the Steve. She's this, the, the person behind Steve Jobs when he does his, right. hey, I got a cool thing here. She's a genius. And she talks about a thing called resonance. And resonance is a simple concept. You have uh, uh, something vibrating like a speaker and you put something else beside it. Uh, and if, if it's the same sort of material, it will start to uh, right. vibrate in sympathy. So Apple puts out a message that says, uh, you're creative, we're creative too. And they find the right person like me or you and we go, oh yeah, I wanna be creative too. And it creates a, a deep human resonance. Their message resonates with me. I go, hey, you're like me, we're gonna be friends. I'll buy that frying pan. And that is Apple. And I wouldn't know a bitten bite if it arrived in a taxi and hit me on the head. I, I don't have a clue about that <laughs> stuff. I pay way too much for my Apple stuff and I have no idea why. 
it's that. Right. Well, you make me think of some of the other brands. Like I'm a big fan of, of bubbly. I'm drinking aha today, but I'm a big fan of bubbly because I like the Michael Buble commercials and I like just the branding overall. I think it gives a certain feeling and maybe that is that, that Talk to me about that. Talk to me about that. Let's, let's pull that apart. I, I know the feeling exactly. You put an aha yeah. next to a bubbly. They taste kind of the same. Yeah, the one thing that that Aha has is they have some different flavors. But I okay, but I would say I identify with bubbly. Like what I'll I'll say is like I'll tell my wife like, hey, if you're going to the grocery store, can you pick me up some bubblies? I don't mean bubbly the brand necessarily. I just you want bubbly. Some fizzy Something water, fizzy with no with not a lot of sweet. But when yeah. I get the bubbly and the can is very simple and it's got the little smile on it and it's got a little message on the little tab on the top and the commercials, I think that that there is like my identity starts to get tied to that a little bit. And it's funny when you, when you're creative and all of us are creative and I challenge anybody listening to this broadcast to do this, take a look at a can of bubbly and take a look at a can of aha. And if you're a bubbly fan, tell me without opening the can, what makes you prefer bubbly? And there's a, this is where this whole argument of design comes in, right? There's a feeling created by the letters, the way they're shaped. There's mm. a feeling from the solid color that comes through perhaps versus the yeah. aha, which is a little bit busier. The little messaging, the Michael Buble connection, the sense of humor, the quirkiness, and you're going, it's fizzy water. <laughs> I know, and, we shouldn't even pay for it. <laughs> we shouldn't be paying for this stuff. It's fizzy water with a bit of juice, like a bit of uh, sweet in it, uh, just enough to make it feel nice. And and yet we feel this innate connection. And that is what makes me wake up in the morning because I go, what is that? You know, it's like Harry Potter where the essence goes out of people. You know, the, the dementors or whoever they are pull the essence out of people. And you're like, it's that essence inside that can where you go, describe that. And you can't orange button, green button that. It's just, right. you right. can't do it. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, what, that's what I think um, the, the confluence of brand and the amazing measure, measuring capacity of digital, you bring those two together and you can gut test so many things. And, and at the same time, you can bring a wonderful foundational human brand message to it that builds something that doesn't go uh, put out the ad, great, take off the ad, down. Put out the yeah, ad, well, great, take off the ad, down. And I also think, so some of the other brands I like, like I'm a big fan of, of Lululemon uh, clothing because you know I like how it feels, it's easy. Mm -hmm. um, I also was a big fan of Stance socks, but since uh, I connected with Rob Fraser at Endure uh, Apparel, which is a local company, and I love his socks. And he talks about this like building a brand Right. He's like, you know, in the first few days of his company, you know, he like first few days, months, weeks, he wasn't getting very many sales on Shopify, but he was like, I'm building a brand for the long term. Mm -hmm. And so the, the thing that I see as a user or, you know, subscriber to the brand or the list is I'm so much more tolerant when I see their ads. Mm -hmm. You know, I like the product the, the ads are creative. They're fun. Mm -hmm. I'm not like oh, another ad for that. I'm like, hey, that's kind of cool. Or when mm -hmm. it shows up in my inbox, I'm like, oh, let's see what they're saying, mm -hmm. right? And there, yeah, there's a discount. So the, the the part that I think for performance that is really great about brand is people will click on your ads because they trust you. Mm -hmm. People will open your emails. 
people will buy when it's time to do that. They will take advantage of discounts. Mm -hmm. They will click on the button, regardless of whether it's red, blue, contrasted color, whatever. They will do the thing because you have, what is it? They know, like, and trust you. Mm -hmm. Or the brand has established their um, uh, authority and, and the trust and they have the expertise. Mm -hmm. And so, so you not just like them, but you're like, I trust them. And I think that there's a lot of value in that. So that's the thing for me as a performance marketer is we can get really good at performance marketing and, and we can conversion rate optimize the heck out of your campaign. Mm -hmm. But we can only increase your conversion rate to a certain level where if someone doesn't trust you or your brand is too generic, nondescript, they're just not going to click. They're not going to convert. And or, so it's, or, they're, they're, or like, they'll click, they'll click and buy, but they won't tell anybody about it. Yes. Yes. You know? And that makes me think about like the HubSpot flywheel concept of we've acquired a customer for a hundred dollars. We acquired one. Mm -hmm. If they love us and have an amazing experience and connect with the brand, they'll come all the way around and they'll tell five people, 10 people. And that mm -hmm. social proof, those 10 people that are told like eight or nine of them will then buy and become customers. So if you create that, then your cost per acquisition on the performance side doesn't even have to come down because you turn $100 into not one customer, but 10, 12, 20. Mm -hmm. That's the amazing part of, of how I think this all kind of comes together. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's another thing that um, uh, what I love about the whole idea of performance marketing is where uh, marketing transitions over to sales. And sales transitions over to conversion or selling, like the actual act of buying. And what I love about working today is not only is it easy to me measure if my messages are resonating, if if my if my instinct was correct, uh, but it's also so rewarding to uh, have this have a machine set up where it's seamlessly easy for someone to go from "I like you" to "click boom, I just bought your stuff." What a, what a rewarding experience. And it, it, it reminds you that uh, being an artist in the service of selling things is actually pretty cool. And, you know, it was extremely hard in the, in the bad old days. Um, it, you know, we would, uh, we, would, uh, we would sell Suzuki cars. Suzuki was one of my accounts. And so I would put out these great TV commercials and print ads and posters and radio commercials, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Website, of course, absolutely unable to convert anyone. So they'd have to walk into the showroom. Mm -hmm. And when they walked into the showroom and bought a car, why did they buy that car? Because they said to the showroom person, I was in the neighborhood. And so all the kudos went to the salesperson. And so what happened was as a consequence, uh, sales said, marketing is crap. All your marketing is garbage. And um, all the people are coming in because they were just in the neighborhood and we sold them. Well, what's wonderful now between, uh, about this, this whole new world of brand being married to sales is that, you know, you can watch people come in, be convinced by the brand and transition straight to selling, to buying stuff. You know, mm -hmm. so you know that it worked because not only did they click, but they purchased. And that's right. really rewarding. That's, I, I've never had that before. It's a really cool feeling. Yeah. So what that sounds like to me is, is having the influence. So is the purpose of a brand to create influence? Because I think mm -hmm. a lot about 
social proof. We're talking about that HubSpot flywheel. And so if I tell 10 people and mm-hmm. I have influence over them, they're going to go and buy it. Uh, I was talking about a, a pair of shoes that I bought that my neighbor told me about, Vessi waterproof shoes. Uh, he told me about them. I went inside my house, grabbed my phone and went to go and try and buy them right away without even like checking if this is a good product or if they're a reputable company. Mm-hmm. But does, you know, is the purpose of creating a brand to create the influence so that when they are in the neighborhood or they are in the market for a car and they talk to the salesperson, they're already influenced. Mm-hmm. And so that salesperson deserves some credit, but probably not all. Yeah. But is that the purpose of a brand is to create some influence so that when they say, oh, hey, here's this new flavor of bubbly or here's these new shoes, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I need that. The new socks. Yeah. You've, you nailed it. It's influence. Um, I think there's also an element of trust. Right. Trust and desire. You know, uh, all advertising or all marketing is uh, Malcolm McLaren, the founder of the Sex Pistols and Bow Wow Wow said, a fantastic marketer, very, very uh, outrageous in his day. Uh, he said, everything in life comes down to sex. And advertising, if you look at it, it's not sex per se, but it is telling you what you could be. You could be Apple, more creative. You could be Patagonia, more responsible and sensitive. It could be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And all these things are traits that you want to incorporate into your personality if you're that type of person. It could be Dodge Ram Cummins Diesel, uh, more manly. You know, but all of these traits ultimately come down to being a, a better version of yourself so as mm. to rise in the view of others, attract uh, romantic interest, you name it. Uh, but all things come down to that. Every brand pitches you that if you do this, you will be elevated in the eyes of others and feel better about yourself. And so Malcolm McLaren, in a weird way, was bang on. So there is influence there. The brand is trying to influence you, but the way they do that is to convince you that you will feel better about yourself, you know, which is also why um, I think if you do it badly, uh, you know, there was a, a wonderful commercial for, I don't know, Mountain Dew back in the day, I think. And it was a fake ad for a soda called Juki Soda, J-O-O-K-Y. Look it up. It's very funny. And it shows the beach bodies and they're playing volleyball and everybody's got six-pack abs and California tans. And you pull back and you see these two 20-something guys obviously haven't exercised in a while or had a shower. And they open up their can of Juki Soda just like in the TV and they take a drink and they look at themselves and they go, my can must be broken. And... (laughs) (laughs) That is what happens when advertising goes wrong. I try to convince you that by buying an Apple computer, you're going to be more creative. And you sit down, Mr. Accountant, the next day and go, huh, my computer must be busted. I'm not creative. And so that influence can also create a lot of resentment. And that's, I think, the the backlash against uh, branding is that if brand people go too far, and they create unreal, unrealistic hopes and dreams in people, uh, people will feel resentful. And the beauty of living in this digital age is that people can voice that resentment extremely right. powerfully. You know, I used to be able to complain to my friend sitting on the couch next to me that my soda is broken, but now I can complain to 5,000 friends, you know, instantly. Yeah, so I mean, there's a there's a, a good case for um, uh, brand people understanding humans 
and understanding the sort of promises you can and should make and the stuff you should stay away from. Yeah, really, really, um, you know, make, makes a difference for sure. Having, you know, allowing the people that purchase your brand to have their own set of influence, which could be quite negative. Uh, but you also made me think about B2B and, you know, like if I work within a big company, you know, what do they, what do they say? Nobody gets fired for, you know, buying IBM, buying IBM or, Microsoft or SAP or whatever it is, right? I mean, that brand has so much leverage and influence. And sometimes what I hear about those products is that they're actually not that good. And there are a lot of other companies that are actually solving the problem that don't have the brand leverage mm -hmm. that someone internally within the company isn't willing to risk their job, their identity to potentially look bad by getting the right thing. B2B, right, B2B is so cool. I, I love B2B because, you know, humans are weirdos and <laughs> we all have our weird little triggers, you know, why yeah. we buy this cleaning liquid or that car tire. But when you get into B2B, there's a whole new level of weird because yeah. what happens is people assume I'm a procurement person. My job is to vet a product that I'm going to buy a thousand of for my company. So I pride myself on being cold hearted and rational, but I'm not. Yeah. The thing is when you, when you sell B2B, you position this product as the responsible, smart decision for somebody to make, check the box of the rational, cold hearted procurement person. Oh, and by the by, you'll get promoted. People will love you. You'll stand out your organization for the right reasons. Malcolm McLaren, everything comes back to sex. You will be elevated in the eyes of your peers, a completely irrational type of response. And effective B2B does both, which makes it very fun to play in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I've, you know, in selling into like big corporate companies, you know, I hadn't done a lot of it. And then we started to do more of it. Uh, and you get in these boardrooms and you're looking at all the people that are there. And it's like, that person doesn't like me or doesn't like us. This person is looking to get a promotion. This person just wants the best price. Mm -hmm. And there's so much, like there's so many layers trying to convince them. You can't just go in and say, we're better and cheaper and faster. And here, that's not enough, mm -hmm. right? You have to win over each person for mm -hmm. the company to invest. And I was just, it's kind of mind blowing to make that realization of like, oh man, this is going to yeah. get really complicated to, I know. to make I mean, this happen. You've got, you've got different personas. And a lot of the time we go in and we say, we're going to sell this on features and benefits because our features and benefits can beat up their features and benefits. What we don't realize is that this person's only agenda is not to stand out and to spend the money before the end of the year. Right. This person's agenda is to be famous and become CEO. The CEO's agenda is just to have peace and quiet in the ranks and be seen doing the right thing. The CFO is telling everybody that it's nuts to be spending money on anything. Right. <laughs> and, and you're the football. They all disagree and you're yeah. the football that they blame it on. You yeah. know, and yeah, that, that's, that, that makes it fun. Yeah. There, but there's a funny thing about it. You know, there's, um, uh, I've been in this situation a lot and what I've always found uh, to work in a, in a situation where you're the football, nobody agrees with anybody else. They all have conflicting agendas. They don't speak up about them mm -hmm. and you're the person that they vent on. 
And what I found in the past has worked extremely well is to dig down in the, in the psychology of each of those people. And what you'll discover is that a very base level, they all share something. Right. They all have a very basic human need and, and fear and pain point. And if you appeal to that, then suddenly you'll find that they start getting along because right. they're not talking about money versus fame versus risk-free. They're talking about um, uh, taking care of their people, for example, right. you know, being the protectors of their company. And if you can land on that thing, and the only way you can land on that is by having conversations with them and mm -hmm. going down, 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 and then reflecting back to them the stuff that they said to you in a creative way, right? and finding that one thing that ties them all together, uh, that is, that's an amazing, that's an amazing thing. Right, right. Have, have you read the book? I'm sure you read it. Influenced by Robert Cialdini. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's, it's one of my book. favorite, one of my favorite books. And, you know, I, I've, I think I read it about five years ago. Um, but prior to that, I was like, you know, because I'm in this world and I understand what's going on, I won't be influenced by these things. I won't be tricked by it. And one of the first things they say in the book is like, there are things that are happening that if you're real with yourself, you can't even necessarily control them. And so I start to look and reflect on my own behavior. And I'm like, oh, wow, there are so many things that I do that are influenced by brand or appeal or that like internal drive, those things that you just, you can't even turn these things off. Mm -hmm. You know, like like a simple thing, like, you know, when when something at, at uh, you know, the store is $3.99, you're like, well, that's $3, not four, mm -hmm. right? Or even just like, you know, Lululemon clothing, you know, pair of pants is $100 versus $20 at Old mm -hmm. Navy. Like, well, the $100 one is better, right? Like, I will tell you that. And mm -hmm. I wear the pants and I will mm -hmm. say that. Mm -hmm. Is it true? I, I don't know. But you, those influence and some of those factors are there. And I think that that's the thing that is somewhat lost in performance marketing because we don't think as much about the psychology first. We A-B test until we find what works. And then mm -hmm. we maybe wonder why psychologically, but we don't necessarily dive in and understand it. Versus... Mm -hmm. You know, maybe in your day, you know, prior to like, you know, being able to A-B test, you would think about the psychology of like, here's why this campaign, here's why this messaging uh, is going to work. So I think that that's a really great book for any marketer, salesperson, anyone in business uh, to read mm -hmm. uh, and look at for sure. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And it's funny uh, because um, what's the book that you always bring up when we talk to each other? Brand, uh, brand, uh, story, brand, story, story brand. brand. Story I'm, brand. I'm almost done listening to it. Finally. <laughs> oh my God. Because every time we talk, you go, remember in story brand and I've, I've read story brand and I've got it on my Kindle and I go, I got to go back to this because otherwise yeah. Williams is going to bust me again. <laughs> and, and now, I, you know, so I thought story brand, okay, well, let's talk about story brand. But now you pull out influence and I'm going, Oh no, now you got to go back and read now that. I got to go back and read that again because it's, it was, a, I remember when I read it, it was like, Oh, this is great. I love yeah. this. But um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my, my problem with all those books is that I like I look at all these things and I'm trying to like, okay, I got to incorporate them. And some of the stuff you just kind of do naturally, like mm -hmm. just as a marketer, like I've been doing it, just wasn't necessarily conscious of it. Uh, but there's so many great uh, tips and, and tricks in there. And, and that's something as a marketer, like ethically, morally, like where do I go with this? Like, do I just want to trick people or do I want to just 
convince them, like just kind of push them over the edge to be like, yes, you do want this. Mm-hmm. Not, I don't want to trick them to buy something because then they won't be able to experience that HubSpot flywheel. They'll be like, mm-hmm. yeah, I bought that, but I'm never coming back. Mm-hmm. That's not creating a brand. And I think in the performance world, sometimes we can be short-sighted like that. Mm-hmm. We're like, yes, we got the sale. And we don't look at, did we get a long-term customer? Did we but, build someone you know, that's going to... The flywheel is the flywheel is really interesting. Um, I had a I had a client uh, not so long ago named Gardening Know How, the most popular gardening website in the world, and their problem was that uh, they were the Library of Congress. They were masters at content, writing stories on how to keep your tomatoes and how to make your beans bigger and all that stuff, and they were the go-to authority. And they had thousands of stories that people would go in and they'd click, they'd read the story, say thank you very much and leave. And they were actually at the opposite end of the spectrum. They were completely altruistic and they relied on Google. Obviously the analytics were fantastic and Google giving them ads and, and, and making money off of advertising because they were so popular. And what they were terrified of was that one day Google would switch the algorithm, tweak it a bit, and all their SEO would go down mm, the toilet. Right. Yep. And so what I told them and what we worked on was, you know, right now, this situation is very simple. Everybody is having a party. You're buying the liquor, but they're all celebrating in Google's backyard. What you want to do is say, hey, guys, why don't we all have that party at my house? Mm-hmm. And what that means is instead of putting it on the commons there for them to read in Google, start them there, but bring them into your house, into your backyard, email, newsletters, yes. marketing lists, and the flywheel. Keep giving them stuff they love and selling them stuff and asking what they want and giving them what they love and selling stuff forever and ever. Yeah. And they and it, there will be a wonderful relationship and they will thank you for it versus straight up buy these supplements. See you later, you know, yeah. and, and you can orange and green test that and people will <laughs> buy it and then they'll go away and they'll never come back again. But that gardening know-how, the idea that you're giving people something that they love and they want to pay you back. Yeah. And just keep doing that again and again, like the flywheel. And that's a fundamental truth of marketing. If you make me feel like you're my friend and you've got my best interest at heart and you're not just there to sell me a pair of shorts, then you know what? Chances are I'm going to come back again and again and again and again. Because I like you. We like each other. And and Rand Fishkin, I heard him talking. You know Rand Fishkin from Moz. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was talking about the same concept basically for for social, like why are you building your entire following on these platforms that you know could disappear based on a trend, or you know, or just just, a, like, just somebody flips a switch at Google, yeah, and suddenly you, your <laughs> posts Facebook. don't go out or you're you're not found, yeah, right? Like you got to get them connected to your brand on your like owned connection, whatever that is. Uh, email, you mentioned it. You know, some of these other ways of, of well, connecting with people. Fundamentally, like I'm an old guy. And fundamentally, it comes down to having them have the party in your at your house. I like that. Yeah. As opposed to having the party at Google's house. Because yeah. you just bought the booze, you bought the food, and then you're sending them to Google's house. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, well, they're, they're going to think Google's going to take all the credit for this. Google's going to own <laughs> these guys. You know, and I, I worked so hard, and nobody's coming to my house. 
Right, right. Whatever yeah. the means is to bring them to your house, get them there. And then I think treat them like good people and, and, yeah. and make it look, even if your heart is dark, but make it look like you do have their best <laughs> interest at heart and you really do believe that you want to help them. And because ultimately, those are the folks who succeed. It's the Yvonne Chouinards of Patagonia who say, you know, I am selling stuff to people who do want to have fun outside and do want to save the planet. And I'm going to keep doing the things that they like politically and environmentally. And then they'll reward me by buying a $100 lumberjack shirt yeah, instead of a yeah. $20 Mark's Work Warehouse lumberjack shirt. I, I really like that quote. Have the party at your house. I feel like yeah. that's uh, maybe a, a stoiberism. Is it is. That your I've quote? never heard anybody say it before, but it came to me when we were working on gardening know-how because yeah. they were there were massive amounts of people, like millions of people, who were partying at Google's house. Yeah, yeah. And Google could suddenly lock the change the locks, and yeah. gardening know-how wouldn't own their own people anymore. Exactly. Invite them to uh, your house. Yeah, I love it. Um, something else, Mark, that you, you talk a fair bit about and, and that, you know, I like to hear from you about is, is storytelling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like I'm hearing more and more about it, but it's one of those things that I think has been switched on in my brain of, hey, this is happening. Uh, so I see more companies doing it. Um, how does storytelling relate to brand and how does it potentially, potentially relate to performance if there is a, a connection there? That. that's <laughs> yeah. all it is storytelling is we're wired as humans to tell stories and hear stories and remember what we heard in a story so it's an extremely effective way of conveying data and information to someone so they'll remember it back in the day when we fell out of trees we would use a story to say i found the buffalo by walking this way three days then walking that way two days and walking that way two more days and if i wrapped it in a story then they'd remember it and if i just said go this way this way this way they go ah uh. but stories are very very powerful with that however what they are also amazing at is creating resonance. And so when we talk about a founder story, a founder story is fundamentally, I was wandering the world, seemed like my life was okay. Then I noticed a particular pain point, something was bugging me. I figured out if only I could invent something to fix that, then I did invent that thing. It was a failure. And then I worked at it and worked at it and worked at it. And now it's a success. Do you want some? That is a movie script. And all it does is it a store in telling it in a story form it it lets people buy into my vision so that they go you know what that guy has that problem i have that problem i'm just like mm. it look look I, he oh he came up with an idea to solve it oh but he was a failure so he's not god he's just right. like me he has failures i have failures but he stuck to it and he worked really hard and like mickey rooney and judy garland they put on a show and they emerged victorious. Man, that's a great story. It makes me feel better about myself. It makes me feel like I know this person better. And it builds an instant resonance between me and them. And that's all that stories do. Yeah, they convey data in a very easy to remember way, but they build resonance between the person you're talking to and the person telling the story. And what's interesting about this, they, people will say, yeah, but, uh, you know, by the founder telling their story, that's just kind of showing off. 
Well, a properly told story, imagine Star Wars, one of the first uh, stories that actually went to Joseph Campbell's um, Hero of a Thousand Faces, the, the sort mm -hmm. of the, the arc of the story. And they sort of, they mimicked that and it was a terrific success. And what they knew was that the power of Luke Skywalker wasn't to show somebody who was a hero, but it was to make everybody in the audience go, he's just like me. He's a farm boy. He doesn't want to have an adventure. He gets thrown into it. He doubts himself. I'm exactly like that. Right. I'm only six years old, but I'm exactly like that. I want to be Luke Skywalker. Yeah. And that is the Yvonne Schwinnard story of Patagonia. He was a dude who just wanted to go mountain climbing and never shower. And suddenly he was forced to make this equipment because he was a blacksmith by trade. You know, a very, very uh, not he wasn't an MBA at Harvard or anything. And the only way he knew how to get the mountaineering gear he, that he wanted was to make the damn stuff himself. Ugh. Who hasn't been in that situation? You know, right. and so we look at Yvonne Schwinnard and we go, oh, that guy, he's he's exactly like me. I think I like him. Oh, he's selling me a shirt. It's a 100 bucks. Hmm. Oh, well, you know, I'm going to buy it. Interesting story. Uh, I, I know the Patagonia guys, a couple of them fairly well. And during the last economic meltdown, the 2012, 2008 to 2012 one, where, you know, we thought the world would end uh, kind of like we thought the world would end now. <laughs> what happened was before that, uh, all big brands had gone the winner's TJ Maxx route, where they would devalue their brands. They would sell them at winners. You could buy 10 PR Cardan or Boss or or Tommy Hilfiger shirts for a dollar. And then the economic meltdown happened and all those brands went in the sewer. And the funny thing happened, Patagonia, $100 for a shirt. Went like this. Stayed steady. Hmm. No, it didn't stay steady. It went through the roof. Wow. How does that work? I don't have any money. I've got, I used to have $100. I've got $10 now. I'm going to buy myself a $100 shirt. That is a completely <laughs> irrational, stupid decision. And it happened. And they, at Patagonia, they couldn't believe it. But that's the power of building resonance in that hard times. If people feel like you're like them, they're going to lean on you. Hmm. And if they got a hundred bucks, they'll spend it on you rather than 50 Pierre Cardin t-shirts. Interesting. I know. And completely <laughs> counterintuitive. Well, I just, you know, you're talking about storytelling, but it really makes me think of the power of brand. And again, like, you know, the, the resonance piece, like, you know, I'm tied to this guy because of the story. I'm tied mm -hmm. to him because of the brand. I'm tied to him <laughs> for several other reasons that I identify with that it makes me feel like I'm this, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think that's maybe like, you know, it makes me think of like the athleisure world. Right. It's like, hey, I'll buy the yoga pants because I don't, but I don't do yoga, but it doesn't matter because it makes them feel that 100%. way. hundred percent. All these guys, overweight, overweight white guys sitting watching TV like me in Air Jordans. Very comfortably. <laughs> in Air Jordans. Yeah, in Jordans. <laughs> right. It doesn't make sense. And and that is that is where pure performance marketing runs into a wall. Right. Because it doesn't make sense. And unless you have that element in your marketing of intuition and understanding or have empathizing with human psychology and the weirdness that exists in all of us, 
you're going to completely drive your truck into the wall. You know, yeah. you're going to be looking down going, well, let's test this versus that test this versus that and miss the fundamental truth that your fans are weird in this way. Right. Yeah. Tying into like their, their weirdness, their identity. Maybe it's, it's uniqueness, right? Like, yeah. you know, weirdness, I, I have my inner weirdness, weirdness, weirdo. But it is, yeah. it isn't weird. It's not like they're, it's not like they're strange, but it is when you, <laughs> when you stand back as an observer and look at them, you go, huh, that's different. Um, I, that's, it's also a reason why, uh, when I used to hire people, um, I would always look uh, at their portfolio. Are they capable of good work? But I'd look at, have they worked driving a taxi, tending bar, selling retail, and have they traveled? I think mm. there's no better way to gain an appreciation of the human weirdness or uniqueness than by being a foreigner. And if you go to a foreign land, you look at the locals and you go, God, these people are weird. And then you go to another place, you go, oh, these people are weird, but in a different way. And then you come home and you go, huh, look at us. We're weird too. We do really, <laughs> as an outsider, you look at people as, uh, and you go, huh, we're kind of quirky too. And that is the power, for example, of Canadian comics. Because yeah. the Canadian comics go to the United States and they hold up a mirror to Americans and show them stuff from an outsider's perspective. Right. And the American audiences go, oh my God, that's so true. How did you know that? I'm on the right. outside, I'm looking in, I'm observing your uniqueness. And that's that has amazing power. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I wanted to comment just to circle back on the, the storytelling piece because when you were talking about storytelling and how that works in our brain, I was watching a thing on, on people that memorize, like there's memory competitions. And they'll give them like a string of numbers. I don't know how many numbers it is, like 500, mm -hmm. 100. And what those people do is they actually tell themselves a story. You know, so one is I traveled to the store or two, whatever. And they work through that. So they actually build a story. And that's how they get really good at memorizing stuff. And so there's something in there I know. in your brain that that's how it works. So if you can tie the story, and I guess that's the like, if I identify with, bubbly or endure i don't actually know if i know the story of those two products but if if i tie that together then that connection or that influence is going to be that much tighter and stronger right you know and that's just that's science i guess <laughs> right but you know it is it is science and 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 it, we are wired that way like i said when we dropped out of trees and somebody had to tell us how to get to the buffalo um they would tell a story and we would remember how to get to the Buffalo, even if it was incredibly complex and hard to remember. Yeah. But, you know, it's the same thing as memory tests. And I know it's true that, that people look at uh, a, 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 an object or they look at a person and they tell themselves a story about that person that makes them remember the name, yeah. you know? So, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's really interesting stuff, uh, Mark, and I appreciate uh, all your, your insights. And, you know, I definitely going to remember that, that quote, have the party at your house. Uh, bring them back. Uh, you know, lots of great things for uh, the listeners to to tune in and and uh, um, you know take advantage of. Mm -hmm. uh, any any parting thoughts or any anything that uh, you want to share that we didn't get to cover uh, today? I, I I think I think that uh, you're going right back to the beginning. Um, I think that we have to stop calling it digital marketing. Yeah, just yeah. just like we we have to stop calling tech companies tech companies. Yeah, because everyone's a tech company, right? If you're not, could, what are you doing? I could be selling pots at the at the gardening shop, and 
I'm a tech company because I sell online. <laughs> and the sooner we get over that, we'll get over that bump of being different. Remember how we used to, we used to ghettoize the direct mail people. And so it creates an unnatural difference and standoffishness and you don't learn from each other. And I think the ultimate victory is to pair up the magnificent advantage of being able to study people and learn instantly that you get from performance and the intuitive psychological study of sort of human weirdness that mm. is, you know, that, uh, you know, experienced brand people can bring. You put those two things together and you've got a real winning combination. And I, I you know, final thought I think would be beware of the orange versus green button test because yeah. that takes yeah. you right down into the weeds and you ignore the bigger truth, the bigger picture. Yeah. And, and something I do see amongst some of the digital marketers that are making the shift is, moving away from, not necessarily moving away from the A-B test, but not that being the heart or the meat of what they're doing and, and more on the understanding customers. Understand your customers and worry less about the algorithm and the metrics because mm -hmm. if you understand your customers, the other stuff will come or this is so much more important and maybe that's what you're saying is yeah. understand the weirdness, the uniqueness, understand people. I, I would never tell anyone to ignore the green button versus orange button <laughs> with their headphones on. The only way to understand people is to sit down in front of them and talk to them. You yeah. won't get it from a survey. You won't get it from reading research. You'll only get it from talking to them because they will say things to you they would never put in research. So get right. the headphones off, get away from your screen, and go out and hang out at McDonald's. If you're selling hamburgers, hang out at McDonald's for a day. Yeah. You'll learn volumes, and it, it'll Absolutely. be fun to boot. Yeah, exactly. Imagine connecting with people. Yeah, imagine. Love it. Love I know. It. Weird. All right, Mark. Well, again, appreciate uh, you coming on the live today and, and chatting and sharing all your insights. And uh, always great to chat with you. I'm sure you and I will uh, talk sometime soon. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye.